let's do it. Let's just do it already. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, all right. The year 2000, um, Gladiator won Best Picture. And it was also the year of Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. It was the year that Steven Soderbergh was nominated for two films. He's, I believe, Michael can correct me, that he's only the second director in Academy history to do that, to have two nominations in the same year. Right. Isn't that right, Michael? That's absolutely correct. So what happened that year was really weird because um, Gladiator kind of took the public by storm. It really wasn't a critic favorite, although the critics liked it. It was very well reviewed. Made a shit ton of money. Everybody loved Russell Crowe. Everybody was totally into Gladiator. But along comes Ang Lee and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And suddenly, wow. You know, everybody is saying, wow, that is like unlike anything I've ever seen. That is a beautiful movie. You know, these beautiful, you know, what's her name? Flying through the air, you know, high kicking. Just incredible. Stunning everybody. And so Ang Lee wins the Director's Guild. But, and so Ridley Scott loses the Director's Guild. Heads into the, they head into the Oscars. People start thinking maybe Crouching Tiger, I was one of them, can really win Best Picture, can be the first foreign film to do that. But now everybody said, no way, Gladiator's going to win. There's no chance any other film's going to win. But then the focus on director started to shift because back then there was still enough time um, between the kind of critics' awards um, and DGA awards for people to change their minds heading into the Oscar race. And there was a shift in thinking towards Steven Soderbergh because of what he had accomplished. People started really paying attention. Traffic came out. Aaron Brockovich had already come out. Traffic came out, blew everybody away. Suddenly people are going, wow, two movies, $100 million. Wow, Steven Soderbergh, who is this guy? Wow, two nominations. Oh, my God, he's not winning any awards. Why isn't he winning any awards? Well, people started writing, you know, sending out letters to Academy members saying, if you want to vote for Steven Soderbergh, put your vote behind Traffic, not Aaron Brockovich because he keeps splitting his vote. And they did that, and Steven Soderbergh ended up winning Best Director, giving a great speech, one of the best speeches I think anybody has ever given at the Oscars. And Gladiator wins Best Picture, and poor Ridley Scott doesn't win Best Director, never had a chance, it looks like, but they sure loved Gladiator. And the Oscar goes to... Steven Soderbergh for Traffic. for Steven Soderbergh. He is also nominated this evening for Aaron Brockovich. Suddenly going to work tomorrow doesn't seem like such a good idea. Um, my daughter Sarah's asleep in London. She's missing this, unfortunately. Um, there are a lot of people to thank. Rather than thank some of them publicly, I think I'm going to thank all of them privately. What I want to say is I want to thank anyone who spends part of their day creating 
I don't care if it's a book, a film, a painting, a dance, a piece of theater, a piece of music. Anybody, anybody who spends part of their day sharing their experience with us, I think this world would be unlivable without art. And I thank you. That includes the Academy. That includes my fellow nominees here tonight. Thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for this. Well, we should also talk about the importance of release dates in this whole situation because Aaron Brockovich came out in March, which you would not think would be a prime time for an Oscar movie at all. But it was so successful, and people loved that movie so much, that, and, and Julia Roberts was so memorable. And people knew from probably from day one that she was going to be a front runner for Best Actress, and maybe they were already giving it to her in March and April, the same way that people are anointed and, and crowned Best Actress so early as soon as their movies come out now. Mm. Also, Gladiator came out on May 1st, which positioned it as a summer blockbuster. Nobody would expect a summer blockbuster movie to become a Best Picture nominee because um, the studio had other, DreamWorks had other movies in mind for Best Picture that they thought were going to be more prestigious. For instance, The Contenders, which I hope we talk about, uh, The Contender. You know, we hope we talk about that later before we finish. They were really counting on The Contender to be their Oscar uh, Best Picture prospect. And they didn't think that they were just going to cash in with Gladiator, make a lot of money. Meanwhile, the movies that came at the very last minute uh, were Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which came out two days before Christmas. Traffic didn't even get a wide release until January 5th. So those movies were at the very last minute, so they were fresh in Oscar voters' minds, and, and the voters were thinking that those movies came out of nowhere. And so they, suddenly they had an alternative to Gladiator at the, at the end of the year. Mm. Yeah, I'm just saying that the, the, the release dates can be so crucial in, in, in years like that. It when was, there are, yeah, it's. I mean, one of the reasons 2000 is so daunting to talk about is because these these are such big movies. They're, there was such a dramatic three way split. This this um, and, and Crouching Tiger ended up winning foreign film, I think, and and a bunch of other Oscars. Like it won, mm-hmm. I think it won cinematography even, and and. Uh, um, I think people being able to vote for it in foreign films maybe probably bled off some of the re- support for it in Best Picture. It was purely speculation. I obviously can't read voters' minds, but they kind of feel like they rewarded it enough giving it Best Foreign Film, and so they, didn't, they could vote for something else for Best Picture. But it's pretty shocking to think that the DGA went for Ang Lee. I mean, it is to me. Like, Soderbergh split his vote there, and so it was between um, Ang Lee and, and Ridley Scott, and it's weird to me that Given the power of Gladiator, that that um, Ang Lee would take that prize. That you know, I always thought, oh, they just must hate Ridley Scott. But I think they just really loved Crouching Tiger. You know, they love. I don't know that they hate Ridley Scott, but I don't know that they respect him either, and as much as they should. I think they. I I think everyone takes Ridley Scott for granted. You know how I feel about Ridley Scott. He's one of my favorite directors, and I think he's always been taken for granted. And I think that people look at the types of movies he makes, like Aliens and Blade Runner, and those don't spell a prestige um, director to them and he makes a lot of really really popular movies and meanwhile Ang Lee as we said before you really have to top yourself you really have mm-hmm. to keep topping yourself and Ang, Ang Lee's career was like such a perfect staircase to to winning the Oscar every successive movie that he would do each consecutive movie would be better than the first, than the one that came before it you know, we've been talking about Ang Lee for several weeks in a row now about how he's how he emerged as as this uh, fantastic director with uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and The Wedding Banquet and The Ice Storm 
and um, what is, am I forgetting? Oh, Sense and Sensibility. Remember when he got, when he was nominated for Best Director for that? So every Ride with the Devil, too. Ride with the Devil. Every successive movie, he's like another rung up the ladder. And so I think people really saw him as finally reaching the point where he can no longer be ignored and overlooked. Right. And yet he continues to be ignored and overlooked, although he did just win last year, so that's great. Um, the interesting thing about Soderbergh is that he was coming into the race with the best actress frontrunner and Benicio Del Toro, who won, I was looking back at the SAG chart, and he actually won lead at the SAG. It wasn't Russell Crowe. It was Benicio. That's how powerful he was and popular he was because he wasn't in the supporting category. Had he been in the supporting category, Russell Crowe probably would have won, but Russell Crowe didn't beat him in lead. And then they went to the Oscars, and Benicio was in supporting, and that's what allowed Russell Crowe to win. I just think it's interesting. It's like Gladiator, like Chicago, kind of just barely took Best Picture in a way. You know, These other movies were really pulling... Um, attention. Well, it, it must have. We know that the sympathies and the allegiances were really evenly divided between those three movies because of the fact that each one of them won four or five Oscars. They, they, the, 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 uh, the wealth was really shared that year. They really shared it really even. It was evenly distributed, and they each won really important reward, uh, awards, four or five really important reward, awards each. Yeah, totally. And they split it up in a, in a really nice way. I'm uh, you know, I watched, we watched, Michael, we watched Traffic, right? Yeah. We watched it. it I think it plays better now um, than it, for me, than it did even then. Like, I think it holds up really well, despite the fact that we, nobody cares about the drug war anymore. But just as a movie, the acting and the story, incredible. You know? well, hey, Michael, you brought already... Go ahead, What's Michael. That? I was just going to say though, you brought up in the in the podcast that 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 we lost that that the thing about the drug war is that um, we were right on we were right on the verge of nine eleven. No, right. that's not right. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and so so um, the drug war was about to be um, eclipsed by the uh, war in Iraq, and so the drug war to. New- Looking back in retrospect, we can now see the futility of it. But at the at the moment, it was a commentary on the drug war that nobody was willing or had really thought about yet. And you brought that up, really, and made a really good point of it last time. Right. Um, when Sasha had mentioned that um, um, Benicio won Best Actor at, at the SAGs, and then he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, well, um, Traffic was a... Um, yeah, a- ensemble piece. And it you know, they, there, there was no clear lead from my point of view. So um, it was, I, it was kind of weird that he got a best a best um, actor nod at the SAG, and there was like a lot of people talking about it that it didn't make sense. And then he gets a best supporting actor Oscar mm-hmm. because it basically is a supporting role. Yeah, because Michael Douglas is really the lead. I don't think that personally, Sasha. I don't think that film really has clear lead. I think it's everyone has just amount, just about the same amount of time in that film. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe Michael Douglas has um, more crucial for him because of what he, what his character is going through with his daughter and stuff. But everyone, to me, is they all they're about the same. Yeah. I don't think there's one clear lead. I really don't. I, I just see it as a big ensemble piece. 
Right. It was a really balanced ensemble, but I do think that Sasha is correct in thinking that the, that, the, that the conscience of the character that Michael Douglas played is really the conscience of the of the audience, where we where he starts out an idealistic um, idealistic about the drug war, and by the end of the movie, he's totally um, discouraged by it, and the audience is supposed to get that same message, and so he he really carries our conscience throughout the movie. I think. Yeah. Del does for me. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. He was such a huge breakout star that year, Benicio del Toro. Everybody was talking about him because doesn't he do? A, he puts on some kind of accent, right? Is it a Mexican accent? Which he doesn't yeah, he's Puerto a- Rican, and he did a Mexican accent. Yeah. And it was controversial at the time because the studio wanted them. He, he doesn't do a Mexican accent. He actually speaks in Spanish with a Mexican Mexican accent. And the studio wanted him to speak English. They didn't want to do subtitles. And he was paranoid that that they were going to dub him over afterwards, that he went to all this work to get the accent just right and that it was going to be lost. And Soderbergh went to bat for him and promised him that that, that wouldn't happen in a million years, and it didn't. I well, still, that's a neat story. I like that. I don't know how he managed to do those two movies in one year. It's so mind-blowing. Soderbergh? Yeah. Two completely different movies. If you watch them side by side and you didn't know who directed them, I'm not sure that you would say, oh, that's the same guy. Because they're, they're different, yeah. totally, completely different. The subject matter is completely different. Their 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 audience is completely different. One is sort of a a crowd pleasing sort of throwback to the old potster kind of movies, and the other one is this incredibly intricate and sometimes confusing sort of massive canvas about a, a, a single subject, and it's just. It's hard to fathom that it's the same guy in the same year. And they even look different. Michael said this last time, but I'll bring it up, is that traffic looks very blue. And uh, Aaron Brockovich is very golden. <laughs> they just look different, like color-wise. Well, the thing, too, about traffic is that there were three different storylines going on, and each of those storylines had a different color palette. The Mexican uh, sequences yeah. were all golden, dusty, and sure. brown-looking. The what, scenes in Washington, D.C. See, we're blue. Then that blue leaves a really strong impact on you. And then the other, what's the third story that I'm, that I'm forgetting? San Diego. San Diego, right. There's, that's uh, uh, yellow in the sunshine. Right, right. It's true. You're yeah, right. I mean, I got, it, it yeah. should be pointed out, too, that he did the cinematography on Traffic. He not only directed both films, but he's the guy who did the cinematography for Traffic. He had, Ed Lockman did it for Aaron Brockovich, but Soderbergh did it himself for Traffic. Oh, well, that's At first, um, when I saw Traffic with Sasha, it, it kind of, like, took me away from the movie because of all the different colors. But now when I think back on it, each color represented the situation that each character, those characters we're in so now it makes sense to me but when i first saw it it aggravated me all the different colors and then now i'm i've been thinking about it and go oh it makes sense because the colors represent the situations that they were in that's that's the perception that i got and subconsciously it helps you keep the story straight you know right away when you're in mexico because of the the yellow look you know when you're in washington because of the blue look without having them have to point it out to you each time. You just know instinctively because of yeah. how it looks. You don't need a caption. You don't even need to see any actors. You can just tell from the first shot, from the long shot of the establishing shot where you are. And with um, Aaron Brockovich, I like the movie. I'm, I'm, I personally am not a big Julia Roberts fan. Um, I like the movie, but it reminded me so much of I've seen it before. I've seen Norma Ray. 
and Silk was. So for me, it wasn't such a big deal for me, that movie. It was the underdog um, fighting against the top dog. You know, it, it just, we, I, I've seen it before. So it didn't really thrill me as much. Even with the different, different actors, situations different, it was still reminded me of Norma Ray and Silkwood. It was the same type of film. So for Aaron, for me, looked like a big budgeted TV movie. It could have been on HBO or Showtime. I never get a motion picture feel when I watch that film, and I've seen it twice already. I just don't get it. I, it's like a, a little TV film that was on the big screen for me. Well, what made it a big screen movie was Julia Roberts because of her star power. With any other actress in the role, I would agree with you that it would would have been would have any you can put any other major even a major actress in that role, and it would have seemed like it could be on Lifetime. But Julia Roberts elevates it to a motion picture. Yeah, you know, she, and, uh, she elevates it. Yeah. I, you know, she does elevate the film, but I think any actress could have played that role. I, I, I just don't see such. What I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't think it's, it's an Oscar caliber performance at all. Mm-hmm. I, I totally don't, disagree. I, 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 don't, not, I don't think I'm, it is. I just don't. I don't think. I it's think an she's Oscar fantastic in it because she's different than anything else that she had done to that point. She's still Julia Roberts because she's still the modern equivalent of the old-time movie star. And so she's going to be herself to a certain point. But she, I I, I don't know, I I give a lot of credit to Soderbergh because I think he has a knack throughout his career of getting great performances out of actresses you don't normally expect it from and you never see it again. I think uh, Jennifer Lopez gave a fantastic performance in Out of Sight, and it's her probably her one and only and Andy McDowell was never better I don't think than she was in, in Sex, Lies and Videotape and I don't think any of those actresses are necessarily ones that have subsequently been necessarily taken seriously but they're they're all great yeah I, I, one thing I enjoy about that movie I, I've seen it countless times it's one of the you know how I like to watch a movie in the background always like to because mm. I like to just be in that world I like the sound and the movement and the pacing of some movies like No Country for Old Men, like The Birds, like Psycho, like Aaron Brockovich. I know they don't seem like the kind of same kind of movies, but they sort of plot along, you know, and, and I love that about it. It's just like sitting in a comfortable bath watching that movie. It doesn't, it's not like, for instance, as good as it gets where you really can't listen to that movie in the background or, or broadcast news because it's so active and it's so hyper and it's, it's asking you to engage with it. Aaron Brockovich and it's so verbal. Kind of plot, yeah. so ver- those movies are so verbal, but and, there's and a visual, like visual. you said, a rhythm but to those movies. what I enjoy movies. about it more is I enjoy watching the relationship between Soderbergh and her as an actress. Like the, 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 the uh, dynamic that they have of what he was asking her to do, how she was performing that character is exciting to watch. Because like Craig is saying, nobody has ever really captured her that way, although... I have to put a shout-out to Julia Roberts in August Osage County because if she's ever been as good as she was in uh, Aaron Brockovich, she's, she is just as good in, in this in this movie. She's great, fantastic. I, I never thought she's I'd an actress. That. She's an actress who's, who's as good as the chances that she's given. Those are my files. Yeah, we had them couriered over. And, and listen, good work. They're a great start. We're just going to have to spend a little time filling in the holes in your research. Excuse me, Teresa, is it? There are no holes in my research. No offense. They're just some things we need that you probably didn't know to ask. Don't talk to me like I'm an idiot, okay? I may not have a law degree, but I've spent 18 months on this case, and I know more about these plaintiffs than you ever will. Aaron, you don't even have phone numbers for some of them. Whose number do you need? 
Everyone's. This is a lawsuit. We need to be able to contact the plaintiffs. I said, whose number do you need? You don't know 600 plaintiffs' numbers by heart. Annabelle Daniels. Annabelle Daniels, 714-454-9346. Ten years old, 11 in May, lived on the plume since birth. Wanted to be a synchronized swimmer, so she spent every minute she could in the PG&E pool. She had a tumor in her brainstem detected last November. An operation on Thanksgiving shrunk it with radiation after that. Her parents are Ted and Rita. Ted's got Crohn's disease. Rita has chronic headaches and nausea and underwent a hysterectomy last fall. Ted grew up in Hinkley. His brother Robbie and his wife May and their five children, Robbie Jr., Martha, Ed, Rose, and Peter also lived on the plume. Their number is 454-9554. You want their diseases? Okay, look, I think we got off on the wrong foot here. That's all you got, lady. Two wrong feet and fucking ugly shoes. Right, and Soderbergh gave her the chance, and they gave her the chance in August, Osage County also, to really do the kind of movie that most people think is beyond her. Well, they play to her strengths as opposed yeah. to trying to challenge, like, Mary Riley. You know, like, Mary Riley was a movie she couldn't really handle. There's she's not a character actor. She's not a character. She's more like a George Clooney or a Sandra Bullock where if you put her in her element and you play to her strengths, she's going to blow you away with her performance. And that's what she does in Pretty Woman. That's what she does in Aaron Brockovich. And that's what she does in August Osage County where she gets to really show her angry side, her angry, frustrated, bitter side. And she's fantastic. You know, she holds her own against Meryl Streep for sure. So. Which is a, that's quite a feat. That's something to do, to be able to hold your own against Meryl Streep. You know, to steal scenes from Meryl Streep, that's something. Just a quick... I don't think she steals scenes from Meryl Streep in that film, but she's good in the movie. But I don't, I don't know. She, I, I'm obviously I'm not a big Julia Roberts fan. She does nothing for me, but um, I, I I don't hate her. I just don't like her work. Yeah. So I just don't like her work. That's all. I just want to say a quick thing about um, Benicio del Toro. He was in a movie called Jimmy P, which I saw in Cannes, and I did not think was a good movie, but his performance is really great in it. Um, I totally forgot about that movie. It disappeared, man. It's never come out. I've never heard another. I just looked on his IMDb because I was thinking, why haven't we seen Benicio Del Toro around in movies? He's such a good actor and he has such presence. And then I thought, oh, yeah, Jimmy P. Nobody you know what he's doing. Because it got savaged pretty badly by critics, it didn't did. it? did, yeah. He played Jimmy Picard in Indian and it was, it was the weirdest movie. <laughs> did you see it, Craig? Did you manage to get I it? I did. Yeah. And I thought he was great in it. The movie itself was interesting, but not entirely successful. Certainly not the worst movie that I saw there. No, it was interesting. It was odd, strange. It was like Borgman, strange. You know, like those two movies were just, how, what, do you, what do you think about that? What do you make sense of a movie like that? It was so you know much who, better than Borgman. <laughs> <laughs> you know what Benicio del Toro is doing next year that we'll be talking about is Inherent Vice. He's got a major role in Inherent mm. Vice against, yeah. um, um, what's his name? Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson movie with, um, with who? Help me out. How exciting. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. Thomas Pinchon wrote the novel. Mm -hmm. Is this yeah. PTA's first adaptation? Uh, uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. Offhand, I think so. 
Interesting. For some reason, I was thinking Inherent Vice was um, was uh, uh, Michael Mann. I know. What an idiot, right? Good thing I didn't say that on the site. But it's going to have a Jenna Malone, great. Josh yeah, Jenna Malone, Josh Brolin, Joaquin Phoenix, Reese Witherspoon, Owen Wilson, Benicio del Toro. You know, fantastic. Interesting. Wow. I think I'll have to read that book. Um, so, yeah, Julia Roberts won Best Actress. She beat out, who was it, Michael Ellen Burstyn? Ellen Burstyn, Requiem for a Dream. Which, it's a joke that she won, but what are you going to do? You have to give Julia Roberts the Oscar. I mean, Yeah, as much as I liked Julia Roberts, she was, and as much as she was just going to win, I, I would have picked a handful of other actresses ahead of her, including Ellen Burstyn, who was, who was fabulous in mm-hmm. Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. One, of the, one of the saddest characters ever. How frustrating it can be sometimes, because in the Best Actress race this year, we have five contenders who give what I consider to be the best performances of the year. This is my opinion. Obviously, other people disagree. But the thing about them is that only one of them is kind of young. It's Kate Blanchett. She's the youngest one. And she's not really considered sexy in the, in the critical community or the target demo. And the other ones are Judy Dench, Meryl Streep, Sandra Bullock, and who's the other one? Uh I can't think of... Is Emma Thompson in there? She's not even being talked about. Yeah. Now, these are women who have been working their whole careers to become the best in the business, and they are the best in the business. Yet, there is a huge kind of backlash against them um, in support of uh, Adele Exarchopoulos in Blue is the Warmest Color and Brie Larson and some of the other younger actresses that um, people would like to see recognized. And I just, I'm so, I'm so, it's so frustrating to me and makes me so sad for these, these actresses who are so great and and have done such great work. But when you're talking about a white, straight male demographic, which dominates the critics and dominates the Academy, there needs to be for most men, a sexual component. If they don't feel that sexual component, a lot of times they're not going to vote. And that's why the Oscars are driven by often a sexual performance like Julia Roberts in Aaron Brockovich, where she had to push up her boobs and show her ass and, you know, really sell the sex. And, and Amy Adams does the same thing in American Hustle, and that's going to get a lot of attention. She walks around without a bra. She's sexy. And that makes her performance great in, in a lot of ways, but it's also the kind of thing that voters really respond to. And I'm not, you know, Adele... Is a great performer, but what? She was 19 when she did that movie, you know? I don't necessarily think you need to start giving Oscars to, to young actresses like that. You know, you don't. You give them to the people who've worked their whole lives to become great. You know? Cough, so cough, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. So basically, Luckily, Sasha, there's a lot of amazing ass shots of Emma Thompson and Saving Mr. Banks. <laughs> <and she's gonna laughs> and we have Craig talked over and over win. again. We just can't stop talking about how fuckable Judy Dench is. Yeah, let's do the Judy Dench, shall we? I'm sorry. That? I just I loved Emma Thompson and Saving Mr. Banks. She's I'm I'm rooting for her. I don't care what else comes out or who else is being nominated. She was just Judy Dench. You have to see her movie. Isn't she Philomena. great? Michael loves she is Philomena. great. It's, it's just such a good movie, and I I hope that film is not ignored. I hope she's not ignored. I hope the screenplay is not ignored, and Coogan is not ignored. I think this is a beautiful film. And I'm I tend to take her for granted. That's and that's my fault. I mean, I obviously I've professed my love for her over the years, but it's like it's like okay, another great Judy Dench performance. It doesn't it doesn't quite move the needle. Whereas I was literally excited to see Emma Thompson knocking it out of the park again because I missed seeing her. She's so great in Saving Mr. Banks. 
She takes a cartoon character, a, a, a character that's written as a cartoon, and she completely turns it into a human being and a, a character who would be easy to hate, but you can actually see the humanity and the vulnerability just just on her performance. It's not in the words because all the things she says are horrible and, and she's this miserable person, but you can see it in her eyes, fear mm. and her insecurity. It's it's it's. Uh, it's great. It's masterful. Well, we've been loving her since uh, since sensibility. Uh, you know what, fantastic. guys? But just think that um, if any of these women get nominated, there's going to be um, four of them vying for their second Oscar, at least one vying for a fourth Oscar. Yeah, I know. I yeah. promise we wouldn't get into this because we're we're going to bury the lead. We have to talk about the actress next week. I brought it up. I know. So oh yeah. Involved, but. Oh. This and we'll, we can we can we can swing it back to 2000, talking about the yeah. other okay. the other. Um, it's ahead. a really interesting comparison you made between Aaron Brockovich and the character that Amy Adams plays. I hadn't thought of that before, but there's a lot of similarity mm-hmm. in this in the type that that really um, busty mm-hmm. uh, type of role, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And meanwhile, in in the year 2000. The you have Ellen Burstyn, who's uh, you know pretty haggard in the movie. Laura Linning, Laura Linning, who's not sexual, and and you can count on me. Joan Allen plays in a movie uh, where the movie's all about sexuality, but she that's in her past. Her sexuality is in her past. She's a senator now, right? I love that movie. You do too, don't you, Sasha? I love the Contender. It. Yeah, that's another atmosphere movie for me that I can watch over and over and over and over again. I call those movies um, aquarium movies, where I can just have them on in the background. It's like an aquarium. Exactly. You know, <laughs> I love the sounds of that movie. That's the way it sounds, and and I love movies where the sound is a consideration, where they don't overdo it with score, and like for instance, the lunch scene between uh, Joan Allen and um, Gary Oldman. Uh-huh. First of mm-hmm. all, it's such a great scene. She sits down. But the sounds in that movie, the way that, that they all, like, t- you know, their forks hitting the plates and the napkins going to the lab, and the way he opens his menu, the way he sounds when he's chewing, the way he talks when he's chewing, and she's a vegetarian. He wants her to order steak. And she's like, no, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. I'll have the penne. And then he's, he insults her. The great her. thing about, she never about the contender that penne. I – penne, and she just leaves, you know. She, <laughs> know, says, right. she says to him, you know what you, you don't want, Shelly? You don't want – what you don't want is a woman with a finger on the button who isn't getting laid. <laughs> that's such a fantastic line, isn't it? Oh yeah. my god, I love that line. That really, that's that's that line alone is worth an Oscar. I think it's yeah. so fantastic. I love it. Right. And, and you so, know what else about the movie that also deserved uh, 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 recognition for a screenplay is Jeff Bridges as President of the United States. You've got President Lebowski <laughs> giving a fantastic. 10-minute speech at the end of the movie that is riveting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the, it's, it, it rivals any real-life presidential speech that's ever been given. Oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a brilliant speech at the end of that movie. And it's so prophetic, <laughs> The Contender. Like, you... You know, watching it, yes, we were all living through that fucking crap. You know, back then we had the luxury of worrying about the president having an affair in the Oval Office mm-hmm. as as al-Qaeda was readying to attack the, the World Trade Center. This is what our government and our president was preoccupied with. The fucking blowjob, Linda Tripp, Kenneth Starr, we all lived through that fucking trying to get our president impeached because of that. It was the most ridiculous thing. We've been cut to 9-11 right after that. Mm-hmm. So... You know, the, the sex scandal thing was a big deal back then. But nonetheless, when you watch The Contender now and you hear what she's talking about, what she's saying about religion and government and how the government needs to be free from the grip of religion, 
you know. That's what right. we're living through. Mm-hmm. The separation of church and state was not to protect the, the church, but it was to protect government, is, the, is what she says, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen of the committee, uh, remarkably enough, it seems that I have some explaining to do. So let me be absolutely clear. I stand for a woman's right to choose. I stand for the elimination of the death penalty. I stand for strong and growing armed forces because we must stomp out genocide on this planet. And I believe that that is a cause worth dying for. I stand for seeing every gun taken out of every home, period. I stand for making the selling of cigarettes to our youth a federal offense. I stand for term limits and campaign reform. And, Mr. Chairman, I stand for the separation of church and state. And the reason that I stand for that is the same reason that I believe our forefathers did. It is not there to protect religion from the grasp of government, but to protect our government from the grasp of religious fanaticism. Now, I may be an atheist, but that does not mean I do not go to church. I do go to church. The church I go to is the one that emancipated the slaves, that gave women the right to vote, that gave us every freedom that we hold dear. My church is this very chapel of democracy that we sit in together, and I do not need God to tell me what are my moral absolutes. I need my heart and my brain in this church. I love it. I, and and uh, Rod Lurie wrote that, right? Uh, he directed he it. it. Directed and wrote it. Directed yeah. it. And you know what else was going on at the time in, in culture at the time? The, the West Wing had just started the year before in 1999. So people were really into the thick of of wanting to know these behind the scenes White House Washington stories because the Clinton thing had become such a tabloid, you know, soap opera in itself. And I love that they mentioned the Clinton situation in The Contender, that they're not afraid to, to go there, you know, that they, that they relate it directly to let you know that that's what they're conscious of. And so that was really a great time to be interested in politics in the movies. But you see with those five contenders, um, Laura Linney, you can count on me, Ellen Burstyn, Requiem for a Dream, Joan Allen, The Contender, Julia Pino, Chocolat, only one of those was really hardcore sexed up for her role, mm-hmm. really sold oh. sex, and that was Julia. Yep. Yep. Yeah, she pushed her, her boobs up forward, and um, she well, won an she Oscar. She needed to because Aaron Brockovich has giant boobs, as I kept trying to tell you, Michael. He's like, I but it's a, yeah, and it's a great movie, though. You know, I have to. I know, Michael, you, you you're not you're not all that impressed by it, but but it really hangs together really well because of what Soderbergh is able to do. He is just a master of of of, of tone and pacing and and. And, and creating a story that you can really get involved in. I wouldn't I have thought that I Well, I don't hate well, I I don't I don't hate it. So let's get that straight. I don't hate the movie. I'm just not as fond of it the way you guys are. Yeah. You know, I, I I know there's a lot of people out there that are like big Julia Roberts fan who likes everything that she does. She can walk on water and she's great, but um I just never saw her as a tremendously talented actress i just and i still don't to this very day even though she's good in um august osage connor she does a really good job i just never really 
responded to her as a really good, great actress. But I just haven't. You know, when we, the other recording that we did that was lost, when we first did 2000, we started lost. off, we kicked it Let's off. Let's call it All about. Is Lost. Our, our <laughs> it was, it was lost. We don't know what happened to it. We just, it just, uh, but um, my, Michael, you and I were talking about Gladiator because we mm-hmm. really, really like Gladiator a lot. We kicked off the podcast by talking about Gladiator and right. Sasha and Craig were kind of quiet for half an hour because you two are not all that fond of gladiator right i just have to remember what i was talking about i can't remember <laughs> but i remember well, we that film to... first no i'm not i'm saying that i remember when that film first came out and i told sasha many years ago i said this film's gonna win best picture mm. it's gonna win I, I said it when it first came out i said this is the best film so far and it's probably gonna win and i predicted russell crowe is gonna win M- months before the oscars months i said he's gonna win best actor yeah you did and i um I was just starting my website. This I had started in 1999, and the year 2000 was the first year I followed the Oscars from beginning to end, and it was a, quite a doozy of a year, you know. It never really was that crazy. Uh, the broke back year, of course. You put Ang Lee in the race, it just messes everything up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People don't know what to do with themselves. But um, but yeah, you were right, and, and I was. I didn't think he was going to win, did I? I told you. I thought it was a Richard Burton ripoff and the Gladiator was just too dumb and generic. Sometimes I just don't get it. You know, like, I, there's some movies, I just, Silver Linings Playbook, I was just shut out of that movie. Like, I never, it never, I never responded to it in any way. Um, I like American Hustle a little bit better, but I still feel like, really, Best Picture? Really? Over Lewin Davis? Over Nebraska? Over Wolf of Wall Street? Over 12 Years a Slave? Really? Best? So, anyway. Where well, were we? Gladiator, Gladiator. The, the, the thing with Gladiator is that it, th- that kind of film had fallen out of favor during the 60s. You know, I think Cleopatra killed that kind of film. And so Hollywood kind of stayed away from those big... Um, type of um, films like that movie because they had like um, back in the day they did The Robe, they did um, Ten Commandments, they did Ben-Hur and they did a film um, King of Kings, they did a lot of movies like that but when Spartacus. Cleopatra came out Spartacus, when Cleopatra came out it kind of killed killed it and so they lost, so those films lost favor so for a long time Hollywood stayed away from the gladiator type film and then when it came out it just sparked so much um the entrance in it that it it had to be it had to be a hit. It it, it kind of hit the core audience that it needed to hit young boys who like playing with swords and being the hero and stuff like that. That's the kind of film that they that that they made. They didn't um, and then they put in like the sort of love interest and the battle scenes and all that stuff. It just attracted a certain audience that loved it and and kind of remember and they kind of reminded people of the kind of films that they used to make. Back in the day, well, it reminded the it reminded people who who had seen those kind of movies on television, like you and I had watched those kind of sword and sandal movies they called them, um, and really loved the epic scope of them. And lo- I liked the um, liter- literary scripts of them too. There was another movie that we talked about um, two or three weeks ago, "Follow the Roman Empire," which is right. exactly the same story as Gladiator, yeah. only it's the real life story. It tells the story of Marcus Aurelius and Commodus and um, who was the sister, the name of the sister? Um, Drusilla, something like that? Drusilla, um, yeah, there you go, yeah. Drusilla. And Sophia Loren played Drusilla in the original. And, right. Um, 
Uh, Christopher Plummer played Commodus, and he's a 30-year-old Christopher Plummer who goes around the movie shirtless, and so it was like he was like a hottie. And um, James Mason was in it. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was played by none other than uh, Alec Guinness. Is that right? Alec Guinness, I think. So it's an incredible movie, and people p- people uh, like you and I who, who watch those kind of movies on television on a small screen were so excited to finally see them blown up to the big screen as they were meant to be seen, I think. Right, right. See, I- I loved those movies too, but I would rather watch those movies rather see, than watching yeah, Gladiator. Yeah. Gladiator brought nothing new to the table for me. It was other than digital effects, which made it look more believable, I guess, than the old school stuff. But I like Spartacus when you're watching the epic battle scenes and you're marveling because it's actual people and they're actually being maneuvered. That, that to me is impressive. Whereas the the digital fighting just kind of leaves me cold. Yeah, you know, I don't know why. Like um, in some of the scenes in the film, which I did have an issue with, was like they um, use um, CGI to for crowd scenes. I mean, they could have done what they did with Gandhi, just um, hired a cast of thousands. No. I mean, I, I don't know why they didn't do that. There's you know, money, I think they would have been more effective. Money. But still, I mean, the film is a the film is. It is effective in in a certain way, but that one scene that bothers me is when Commodus and his sister roll into um, back into Rome, and you have um, these glimpses of crowd scenes. But when they um, pan out over the um, where his um, where the steps are and pan out, everything else is CGI, and that always bothered me. It's like they couldn't get real people. Just for those mm. scenes. You know, I that, guess it didn't bother me because I'd never seen anything like that before and I didn't have anything, anything to compare it to. I was sort of marveling at the fact that they could do that with CGI. I was really, really, really impressed by it because the only CGI I had ever seen up until that point had been science fiction CGI. I didn't realize that you could create real-life, uh, real-world environments with CGI. That was the first time I'd ever seen that done. It may not look as great now as it did at the time but at the time i didn't know any better and i was blown away by it i loved it so much well it's definitely the best looking rome i've ever seen on film and that's why ridley scott was a perfect director for it and that's why the writers came to ridley scott because they knew he could do it visually but that's also maybe part of the weakness that you were talking about craig it's more of a visual splendor than it is a a story or literary splendor as some of the movies in the 1960s that we're talking about had really really literary scripts to the point that they almost sound shakespearean and gladiator does not have that yeah, I, I have to be careful, though. It's it's a movie that I do like. I sound negative on it, and I'm not, but it's one of dozens of movies that winds up winning Best Picture, and I sort of backlash against it because, to me, it's a preposterous pick for Best Picture, but it's still a really good movie. So I, I have to be careful about how I sound about it. I, I, I really do like it. I guess well, I'm I, the only one who really doesn't like it. <laughs> I like the stuff with but Russell But, you know, I will Crowe say one more thing, and then we'll, we'll get off Gladiator. But one thing that I like about Gladiator or that I like about Ridley Scott movies is the same thing I like about David Fincher movies is he really lavishes a lot of detail on his DVD editions. Mm. And you can watch the DVD special features for Gladiator, and it expands your appreciation for me so much more than not knowing how that was done. And Fincher does the same thing. He makes his movies... He makes you inve- feel invested in the in the making of the movie and teaches you like a, a little bit of a film school in the way that he his, his director's commentary and everything. In the same way that I think if you had read, as Sasha, you did, read um, uh, game Team of Rivals, it makes you appreciate Lincoln more because you understand the background. And so I got 
I, I'm maybe a little bit more impressed by movies like Gladiator because of the supplemental materials. Right. I guess Probably, that's what I'm saying. Maybe. But I think if yeah, I don't really movie, go for the extra bells and whistles. I figure a movie needs to deliver on screen or not, regardless of what the filmmaker has to say about it afterwards. That doesn't that doesn't sway me. Those things are interesting and fun to experience, but it doesn't necessarily change my opinion of a movie. I still love Zodiac even if even if Fincher didn't, you know, talk about it and have a great commentary track and all that kind of stuff. The thing I didn't like about Gladiator was the only thing I didn't like about it because I loved all the fighting scenes and the way it ended. There was so much crowd-pleasing stuff in it. And it's funny because now that I watch it, I don't have the same problem because Joaquin Phoenix has become such a great actor, you know? But back then, to me, he was really overdone and he was scenery-chewing and his relationship with his sister was so dumb and bizarre and melodramatic that for some reason it just pulled me out of the regular Gladiator story and just made it, like, almost ridiculous. How about his bad English accent? And his terrible English <laughs> accent and those awful scenes to watch him. For, but, so you know, um, the character that he it, portrayed... I'm sorry. No, I, that's okay. I mean, you don't know, I'm not trying to argue with you about it. I was just telling you that that's how I felt back then. And I don't know, knowing what Joaquin Phoenix has done with his career, if watching it now, if I would have that same reaction. I, I will never think it's a great film, but I... You know, you guys both have good taste, so I, you know, totally. Respect. Well, you know, the thing is, with these kind of films, they usually hire a cast of British actors for these films. Most of them are British, is with very few Americans with big parts. And yet, I have to admit that um, Phoenix's um, accent was a little off, but his character, you know, if you knew the character that he was portraying. Um, the emperor, he was not. A, he was a very, very sadistic guy. I mean, he. I mean, he did fight in the arena a few times. Now, he was never killed in the in the arena. He was murdered, but it that was fictional. But everything else, where he um, had the games and stuff like that, and he was sadistic mm. type of character. He played that part, I think, pretty well as best he could. Yeah. I'm sure. Going back and looking at it now, I'm sure I would feel the same way, you know. You do. But you know, Sasha, I felt the same way as you did when I first saw it back then. I thought, this guy is way too bizarre and eccentric to be in this type of movie. He seemed like that he didn't fit in quite well. But in retrospect, as you say, Michael, the character himself was bizarre and and really weird and and, and strange and... and uh, um, evil in a, in a way that we don't usually see in those types of movies. And so it, it I like it better in retrospect than I did at the time, yeah. but at the time it seemed off-key. It didn't seem weird or evil or menacing. It just was a bad performance. But I think now, respecting him the way that I do and seeing what a great actor he's become, because I don't think he was good back then, but he's become a great actor. He's great in her, and he's great in the master. He's incredible. But... It was a bad performance. It was melodramatic, overacting, scenery chewing, terrible, terrible performance. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm, I'm a Joaquin Phoenix apologist. I think I'm the only one who actually defended I'm Still Here, that fake documentary that he made. I loved him in Two Lovers. He was great in The Master. I was actually surprised at how little I liked him in Gladiator. It just, um, he was, and he was good in things before that. He was great in To Die For. And there was this really crappy. Uh, oh, to die for! He's fantastic. In Joel that. Schumacher movie with uh, Nick Cage called Eight Millimeter. That was a terrible movie, but he was actually really good in it. And, th- and those are both before Gladiator. So I don't know what the hell happened. But I, rewatching it, I was I was surprised and disappointed how how little I liked him in it. 
The other uh, um, Best Supporting Actor nominees that year were Benicio Del Toro, um, Joaquin Phoenix, Albert Finney, and Aaron Brockovich. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. He was great in that, right? His American accent I thought was really, really great. Jeff Bridges, who we talked about in, in The Contender. Uh, played the president Lebowski, and then William Dafoe, uh, Shadow of Vampire, which I really like that movie a lot too. Yeah. About the Good, making yeah. of Nosferatu. Nosferatu. But Great you can movie. see how Great easy movie. it was for Benicio to win that. I mean, those that was not competition. People did think Albert Finney, Michael Albert Finney's never won an Oscar, right? No, it was his fifth nod too. His fifth, yeah. and he's previously he's all been nominated for Best Actor. This was his first Best Supporting Actor nod. So everybody thought he was going to win. Sorry, I'm eating an orange. Just ignore me. No, I, I think mm. everyone thought he was going to win because of the fact that um, he has been shut out, I think, three or four, four, like, mm. previous times. He's never won an Oscar. He's yeah. been around since, like, the 60s, early 60s, and th- he was overdue. And so I think a lot of people thought he was going to win, um, and that would have been um, a really coup for that movie. But unfortunately, he didn't pan out, and... So he lost out again for the fifth time. See, I I think his accent, I disagree. One of my pet peeves in movies is people doing accents when they do them badly. And he, I don't think, a lot of, like, Michael Caine and him, I don't think they can do very good American accents. And it's, hmm. it's, it's exhausting listening to them try. <laughs> well, Michael Caine yeah. can't. That's for sure. He can't. Yeah. It's been so long since I've seen Brockovich, really, that I, I just I remember that I thought that it was that he made a great stab at it and carried it off pretty well. But I don't know what I would think if I if I watched it again tonight. But he's great in it. It's just that yeah, having to listen to him lumber through trying to. I think when you look at them, you see Michael Caine's face and you see Albert Finney's face and you can almost hear their voice before they even say a word. And so when anything comes out of their mouth, it's not their voice. It sounds weird to you. But I have a really good specific ear for accents and dialects. And I had it growing up, but also it was one of my things in in, um, acting school. When I was in theater, when I was 19, I was in the LACC Theater Academy. It was a really rigorous eight hours a day acting program. And one thing I was really good at and known for was mimicking people. I could mimic voices, you know, I could mimic accents. I could go, I would go on stage and I would entertain everybody because I would imitate all of them and they would laugh. Even now my mom is always like, do me, do me, ha, 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 do me. Oh, I know. You trip me out when you do the Skype call testing service, <laughs> yeah. girl. I don't do it a lot as much as I used to when I was younger, but I think I have a, a keener, um, ear for that and so maybe it bothers me more than it does most people you know because I, I can hear i can really hear subtle word you know differences and, and i know there's some words ah that their a's their high a's are weird the, the when british people try to do american that doesn't really bother me i don't mind inauthentic accents despite what i said about joaquin phoenix it's not the inauthenticity of his accent that bothers me it was the fact that they had him put on an english accent for a movie where he's not playing an english person <laughs> oh, yeah, that bothered me. so albert finney or michael Caine or any of those people or when an american does an, an english accent maybe i'm tone deaf it doesn't it, it doesn't bother me there's more to the acting than than Getting a voice right to me. See, for me, with Albert Finney, as long as I didn't hear the British accent, which I did not hear, I think he did a good job. You and know, you're right. I, I heard he tried to do yeah. some type of Southern drawl, but I didn't hear any link of British accent coming out of him. So for me, I think he did the job perfectly. Yeah. He did. A, um, I didn't hear any. I heard the Southern drawl he was trying to do. I mean, I've always heard 
isn't it difficult for British actors to play Americans than it is for Americans to do British? Well, Americans just almost can never do a, 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 a believable British accent, even to my ear. And I think it's really ridiculous, especially to British ears, to hear an American. It must to, be, yeah. Only, only like um, Gwyneth Paltrow can, is the only actress who can really pull it off really impeccably. No, um, British but, but, but Renee Zellweger. Okay, yeah, Apparently, all right. They all but, but British actors are much better at it. Maybe so, but like he'll say, he says in the movie, you know, because you suck at it, you know, when he says, you know, are you apologizing? And he says, because, you know, instead of because, Mm. the way an American would say it is because. If he was Southern, he would say because, maybe. But it just, you know, those little things take me out of it, but it's so stupid to nitpick because it's a great performance. He's wonderful in it. It's just that some British actors can do it. I don't think Kate Winslet does it very good. She does pretty good. You know who does British, great British accents? British actors do southern accents really well because the southern people have held on to remnants of the of the British accent yeah. much more so than northerners have. Yeah, like Benedict right. so there's, a, there's more relationship between southern accent and British accent to begin with. Benedict Cumberbatch has to do southern in August Osage County. He's great. Nails it perfectly, you know, the accent. Just think about Vivian Lee in Gone with the Wind. How she how well she did with her oh, southern accent. She's a goddess. And in Streetcar, she did it perfectly. Yeah. Southern women, you know, she did yeah. it great. Well, also, well, British actors are to me are a lot more trained than American actors. Maybe hmm. I'm being, maybe I'm being a little. Um, no, you're right. We've talked about that. How they <laughs> they study it. They study. They study. You, you, you don't just get plucked out of high school in America. You get plucked out of high school and you're a movie star. But in Britain, it's totally different. You go to drama school. Yeah, they cultivate their actors over there. We don't cultivate actors here. If you got a pretty face and, and they like you, they'll throw you in a movie here in America. Sasha, it's, it's, you've talked about this difference. a lot. Mm. Yeah, totally. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think that I agree that um, British do better American accents than Americans do British accents. I, I don't think that the British accent is. But like you said, <laughs> Ryan, maybe all this time I think it's a great British accent, but maybe it's terrible. Maybe the British people <laughs> are know, listening right. to it and going like, what region is that even from? You know, Because there's no such thing as just an English accent. I mean, they all speak differently mm-hmm. as opposed to what kind of class they're brought up in for one thing and what their education is like. In England, your accent betrays your class. And kind oh, of Sherlock, Holmes. Sherlock Holmes can listen to you say one sentence and he can tell you what street you were born on. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's the one thing about England is that they are really into the class structure there. And so yeah. they know where you're from just the way you talk. If you ever watch Downton Abbey, perfect example. Downtown, Downton Abbey is the perfect example of the class system and the different dialects with the British accents. Yeah. If you, you have to see it. Then you'll know from the rich to the... Um, the people who work in the house to others, you can hear the different um, dialects. Well, and what I love is I can watch a movie. I can watch a Downton Abbey, and I'm not, I don't really, I'm not really so conscious of it. But then you see those actors at awards programs and hear them speak in their natural voice, and then you really appreciate what they're doing. Yes, exactly. And then you really, really appreciate the the nuance that they're putting into their accents. Well, like the redheaded guy on, um, you know, what's his name on uh, Homeland. Homeland. He's British, mm. that dude. He does a flawless American accent. It's flawless. You know, he can... And really the guy in The Wire, who, Dominic, uh, Dominic, somebody who was in The Wire, is yeah. British. Dominic West. Don, yeah, Dominic West, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it... Idris <clears throat> Elba. I didn't realize he was English for years. Yeah. There you go, yeah. 
I didn't know Kate Blanchett was Australian for years and years because like, she kept playing every accent under the sun except for Australian. And I finally saw an interview with her and I'm like, holy shit. Right. Hmm. And I thought Russell Crowe did a great American accent in The Insider. You know, he was, in The Insider and uh, um, L.A. Confidential. Yeah, it totally. Like, tr- you could not even tell he wasn't from here. I mean, that's impressive when they can take and fool yeah. an American. You know? When you see L.A. Confidential and you don't realize that Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe, where they come from, you just think they're, under, they're just undiscovered American actors. Right. Because you've never seen them before. You don't have any, any prior knowledge of them. Yeah. And I watched Bonnie and Clyde on um, uh, whatever it was. Har- Lifetime? Lifetime. Lifetime, yeah. Really good. I mean, no, it's not Bonnie and Clyde. It's not ever going to be. It was history, wasn't it? Yeah. It's kind oh, of, but, it? but the Hollywood It's more factual than the Warren Beatty version, actually. It's more factual. But it, you should watch it for um, Emile Hirsch and Holiday Granger, especially. She is fantastic, and she does a really good Southern accent. She's British. And she's British. She's going to be a huge star, that girl. Watch out for her. She's incredible in this. One movie that we talked the hell out of that we've not even touched on at all, that Sasha, that I know you love a lot, is Almost Famous from the year 2000. I was looking over it and I was I was rem- remembering that we didn't even go there. We, last time I think we started with Almost Famous on the All mm-hmm. Is Lost podcast. I know, like we talked about it for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gone. Um, okay, so quickly, Almost Famous was, you know, the way that the Oscars... Um, once the Oscars expanded to 10, which they did, and then they now they do between 5 and 10, supposedly, or 5 and 9, or however it works out. Um, we all assumed that once they did that, that meant that the movies that got really close to getting in would naturally get in. And, and the way that we gauged that importance was we looked at the Guild Awards. Well, Almost Famous was nominated in all of the major guild awards heading into the Oscars. And it was really beloved um, at the time. I think Roger Ebert wrote a review, said he wanted to hug himself after he watched the movie. And Cameron Crowe, to me, has never been better. And I do love it. It missed out on a nomination. And we talked about the reasons why, because of the box office we concluded, right? That it was, it didn't make any money. Wasn't that yeah, because it was so expensive. For one thing, for some some way, almost famous cost sixty million dollars to make, which is incredible to think that it cost maybe as much as almost as much as Gladiator, you know. And people looked at Russell uh, at um, Cameron Crowe and thought he had overindulged, partly because of the money he spent, and also partly because it was such a, a personal story. It's like you give a guy sixty million dollars and he he writes his diary. <laughs> You know, and so it was. It was just thought to be sort of really overindulgent at the time. It's the way people regarded it. I think. I guess so. That must have been kind of the whispering campaign going on at the time. But what was mm. interesting about it to me was that when Dragon Tattoo was up for the Oscar, it, it also placed very highly, in, including the DGA, and yet mm-hmm. it wasn't included in the Oscar um, Best Picture race. And so I, I figured, okay, well, it doesn't really have anything to do with the guilds and that kind of support the academy just does its own thing and emotional response tends to matter more but you only had five back then i would guess that almost famous would get in today under the system that it is it would probably have gotten in oh i think so too i believe it probably just barely missed you know it's hard to believe that chocolat got in instead of yeah instead of almost famous although i know you that you're fond of chocolat for a lot of good reasons, it's just hard to believe looking back that Almost Famous got kicked out on, on 
by that movie. It is really. Well, I think hard Almost to Famous appeals to a slightly younger audience, and I think, especially, I think even back then, there was probably even a bigger segment of Ernest Borgnines in the in the in the uh, Academy. So I think that something like Shock a Lot is going to appeal to them more than something like Almost Famous. Does but that make did, any sense at all? It does. It it absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've talked about that before. How, no matter how good a movie that in, involves teenagers or high school, no matter how good a classic it is, it's going to be overlooked by the Academy because they look at it as a, as a, as a kid's movie. And the reason Chocolat looks worse than the others is because the others are so fucking great. You know, I mean, these are giant mm. movies. And Chocolat was such a little movie nobody had heard about. The Weinstein Co. pushed it through. Well, they were Miramax then, but they totally pushed it through the old-fashioned way. You know, they, they took it probably to parties and, and showed private screenings. I have no idea how it worked, but I do know people were really surprised. By well, I, one thing that Harvey seems to do that I don't think – people just assume that he takes crappy movies and he, he strong-arms people into voting for it. But I think what he really does is he knows the Academy like nobody else. Yes. And so he picks movies – ahead of time that he thinks that that audience is going to fall for and he's right. right and then he sells it to him he did it with he's still he's still doing it today he's got he's got his fingers on the pulse of that audience he did it that with likes the reader. that kind of movie remember the reader got pushed through instead of the dark yeah. night um i think that he's yeah that's why we call him the oscar whisperer because he is he's the master he knows exactly and a dev definitely started back then with chocolate but Yes, in retrospect, I look at it and I go, wow, a story about women, a whole island of women, a story about repressed sexuality in the church. You know, I can dig it. it has a- there was a thing going on at the time, too. There was a really cutthroat uh, competition going on between DreamWorks and and um, Miramax, mm. uh, but all, go, going all the way back to Shakespeare in Love and Saving Private Ryan. After that happened, every year people were looking for the battle between Miramax and, and DreamWorks. Oh, and right. it happened again this year with Gladiator and Chocolat. Yes, indeed. That's so yeah. funny. You should say that because nobody thinks that way anymore at all. Yeah. But, yes, yeah. that was it. That was it. People really did think that that Miramax stole that Oscar. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, in a way, Gladiator was a revenge of the of Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny when a movie, when you're not the target audience of a movie and you just can't understand how anybody on the planet could possibly like this movie better than your favorite. It happens every year. Yeah, I know. I'm always locked out these days. I haven't had a movie that won that I loved since Hurt Locker, which was more recently than me. (laughs) Yeah, you're no country for old men. Yeah, it's still a shock to me. I still, I still don't believe it didn't, that it actually happened. But I think you it was have to just, understand they love the Coens. I know. I don't understand why either. Because they want to be the Coens. Because they're, you know, big they're old cool. Jews. Is that it? They're big old Jews. And they like the fact that these guys make the kind of movies they wish they could make. They, they love certain directors just become their, like, weird avatars. Like the Coens, like Clint Eastwood. They just love them, you know? Yeah, they, they, I, I get Clint Eastwood. I don't get the Coens. They're just... Well, I get They're the just Coens a couple because, of nerds. Yeah, They're but I geniuses. do get the Coens because they they can never make a bad movie. Exactly. Their movies are so damned enjoyable. You know, people just even They're if you think, I, even if you think, agrees with you on that. That's mm, the thing guess, is that but, they they don't make mass massively popular movies. They make movies that appeal to a relatively small segment of the audience. Well, they a lot make of people movies. see them and they think, "What the fuck." 
I know. Well, same with Woody Allen, right? I mean, he's a, an Academy Avatar too. They love him. You know, they they nominate his films all the time, and his screenplays and his actors. I mean, there's just some directors whose work they always like, and the Coens are them for sure. People it must be his about, New York, their New Yorkness. That they, yeah, I think that, it is, but it appeals to them. Sometimes people talk Jews, about the fact that know? New York directors have, are at a disadvantage, like Woody Allen and the Coen Brothers and, and Scorsese. But I believe that there's a there are a lot of actors who live in New York. There are a lot of New York New Yorker actors, believe so there me, is that contingent. Everybody worships the Coens. Everybody wants to be the Coens. Everybody in film school wants to be the Coens. Everybody in the Academy wants to be them you know they're hip and cool and removed and they don't give a fuck about you but up until no country it didn't feel that way they always seemed like outsiders to me Um, fargo Fargo? seemed like an accident (laughs) well i think it did seem like an accident to the coen's coen brothers themselves they could not fathom why the fargo was the movie that that caught on they couldn't figure it out they thought they had made better movies and they couldn't understand what it was about fargo it was Frances mcdormand about fargo that's what brought them in Mm -hmm. they were charmed by her and then they became they fell in love with with these quirky filmmakers i really do think a lot of it is and i'm half jewish so i can say this without sounding like a bigot but i really do think a lot of it is like (laughs) you're only half a bigot yeah like jew kids make good jew kids become the kind of awesome you know artsy outsiders that they all wish that they were see the academy they don't think of themselves the way other people think of them they think that they're hip and cool and out of you know these awesome the best in the business you know the professionals the they don't think that they're these you know aarp you know um cushy kind of you know hooked on prozac or whatever it is that they do now in their retirement they don't see themselves that way you know they, they, and so they identify with with the rebels. In but they make these never, films, Sasha, that are kind of quirky that just don't appeal to the masses. You know, yeah, like um, so. I don't know. I mean, I did like the big Lebowski. I have to admit, I thought it was a really entertaining film, and I I've already seen it twice already, so I, I do like it. And and I'm not a big Cohen fan myself. Um, I did not like Old Country for Young Men or whatever it's called. Oh, um, I, I did not like that film at all. I thought it was so boring. I, I didn't like it. Uh, um, you cannot mass- be on the podcast anymore. <laughs> Masterpiece. But um, if Hollywood seems to have a hard-on for the Coen brothers... But they who, don't you know, always. Like Burn After Reading, they ignored. I mean, it's not always every... But you know what? I never in a million years would have expected a serious man to be a Best Picture nominee. You or know, but it made for- It made literally... It made nine million dollars or ten nods for true grit i know so you would just not ever expect that those movies that but you're right there there are those people in the academy who look at the coen brothers as if they're their little nephews made good yes the boys the cool artsy jew boys not the 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 embarrassing unhip bar mitzvah jew boys but the Mm -hmm. or the you know old rich jew men that you know people think of they're right. like cool they're like of, the bob dylans of the movie world they seem to like joel cohen's work better than e- like to me i've always thought that like they divide very sharply with their voices and to me joel and i could be totally wrong about this i could have it backwards but given ethan's kind of playwriting tendencies and playfulness i would think that the movies like inside lewin davis um, burn after reading and big lebowski are are more ethan leaning and the movies like no Country for Old Men and Fargo are more Joel leaning, and they seem the Academy seems to like the more Joel leaning movies than the more Ethan leaning. 
That's yeah, I don't, I don't see it that way. I see them as I see them as a single person. Actually, it's weird. They're not obviously, but I, I, they're they're they may be two sides of, of of a whole, but they're still the same person. Just the way they 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 answer each other's questions or they finish each other's sentences, and they I, I can just picture them sitting in a room, just knocking out a screenplay, making each other laugh, and you know sometimes they'll get a funny one, and other times they'll get a more dramatic one but i never really see one person as being more dominant on a particular thing than another yeah i just see two distinct voices in their work and so that's how i've i've reconciled that in my mind like it makes sense because there are two distinct types of films that they make yeah which one is married to francis sasha joel miller's crossing would be more joel leaning but it could just be that one of them sort of has the idea and the other one kind of supports them. Or maybe you're right. Maybe they do just say, oh, let's make a different kind of movie this time, you know. But whatever they do, they're fucking geniuses, okay? They're just, like, the best. So no complaints. They well, – how do we get and on I'm, the Coens? I'm they're just really – we were talking – I don't know how we got on it. How we're we were talking about we were... the Coens. They're not even in 2000. They are. They had Oh Brother, oh. Where Art Thou, which oh, okay. is awesome. <laughs> they had oh Brother, Which actually it ties into today because that was their first – uh, no, actually, not their first. It was their second collaboration with T Bone Burnett, and it was yeah. one of their movies where the soundtrack was actually bigger, probably than the movie it was. And That's I have a feeling that Inside Lewin Davis is going to go come across the same way. Cinematography by Roger Deakins. Mm-hmm. I think the funniest movie of all time. Uh, for me, no movie makes me laugh the way Oh Brother Where Art Thou does. I mean, no movie, none. And you know, I don't really even like comedies. I, I, I like to, I don't, I like to not like comedies. I like to be, I like to just try not to laugh, but that cannot avoid laughing at over just thinking about the lines they, and the scenes and the situations. To me, they're so funny. Like when I was sitting in Cannes watching Inside Lewin Davis, I was laughing through the whole fucking thing. And, and this last time I saw it at the AFI Fest, there was one other guy sitting in front of me and both of us were laughing at exactly the same things all through the movie. Like everything was funny about it. What I didn't understand is why everybody else didn't think it was funny. Like to me, it was just all the way through a really funny everything that happens. You know, they're just the characters that they bring are, are so bizarre. You never would have thought of them. Like in uh, Burn After Reading, is full of them. You know, like that guy. It was just lying there, just lying on the floor. <laughs> why would they come up with something so bizarre and uh, like abstract like that? But it's funny, you know. I know Brother Where Art Thou was really, really funny. George Clooney is so great in that. They somehow have the knack of doing... I, I really like absurdist situations, but I also don't like movies that are so absurd that they're ridiculous. And they, they walk that really fine line really, really skillfully, where they ground their movies in enough reality so the absurdity seems like it could really, could really have happened. Yeah. In our All is Lost podcast, we talked about Cameron Crowe how his career kind of took shape after this and what a disappointment it was that Almost Famous never got in. And we've passed Jerry Maguire already, right? Oh, uh, yeah. We talked about before. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jerry Maguire did get a Best Picture nomination, and so then Almost Famous didn't. And then he never really got more Academy traction after that. I mean, it sounds stupid to say what a dumb term, but he never really did, you know. Kind of fell off the radar. yeah. He hasn't worked a ton either. I mean, he did Vanilla Sky, which I think was not really terribly well received. What was the one he did with uh, the little dude from uh, Lord of the Rings? 
Uh, Elizabethtown? Yeah. That, yeah. One was, that was destroyed by critics. Destroyed. And he was in movie jail for a while after that. He was totally, mm-hmm. and he's still in movie jail because you remember the We Bought a Zoo put him back yeah. in movie jail. <laughs> yeah, movie. The best way to get in a movie jail is to make an expensive movie that doesn't make its money back. Yeah. And you, get, you get put away for life. It's a, you know, death row. You know, all this proof shows that this is a tough industry to to be in. You can once you're sometimes you're the top dog, and then all of a sudden you're at the bottom of the heap. You know, it's just a weird industry. It's it's gross actually in that way. But the, and especially the awards thing, it's, it is a popularity contest, and it's all about perception. It has so little to do with the actual quality of the work. But I guess we can say that 2000 really had a lot of great choices. Uh, in so, the- so great. I mean, just think about how people were just blown away by Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Even though we had seen and we talked about, I think, Craig, you brought it up, that the choreographer for The Matrix was the same choreographer that they had brought over, the uh, Wuxia guy, to who choreographed um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But it was done in such a different way. People had just never, ever seen anything like that before. Well, it was it was a little bit more complex, and it had a higher budget. But a lot of the stuff that they do, were doing had been done for a long time. And it was okay. really popular in the early 90s among in Hong Kong. Um, mm-hmm. In and, fact, there was, a, there was a movie called the, A Touch of Zen in the early 70s, which had examples of it. But I don't know that it was quite as elaborate. And it was certainly the first time most of us normal people had seen it. You know, the movie nerds were into it, but the regular audiences, typical American audiences, had never seen anything quite like it. It was a cult thing. It was a cult thing in America. I mean, it was underground, and people were trying to get people to watch Wuxia, but nobody really understood it or thought, knew what it was. It was too much like Samurai, but then it wasn't, you know. And um, also, I think one thing that really did help Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was with CGI, you, with the wire work, you could make the wires disappear completely. That's one thing that really bothered me a lot about um, the early Wuxia is that you could, you could a lot of times see the strings that people were hanging from. Yeah, you know, the Hong Kong. Yeah, you know, but with uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden, Hidden Dragon, of course, you can erase all that and just make it look magical. One What's thing- funny is hearing people grousing about the wire fighting and how it's unrealistic, and yet they'll go see a superhero movie and not even bat <laughs> an eyelash. Um, right, and not even, and not also not realize that it has a, such a long tradition in China. The Chinese um, literature, they look at looked at the, the type of people who had those skills as being almost having superpowers. Yeah, the people and the They're legendary mystical. people who exactly mystical. That's the word I was looking for. Don't you think it's this is a random thought? And then I just want to talk quickly about Michael Douglas and Wonder Boys. But this is just a weird random thought. Do you ever look at the Oscar list of these years? And some movies seem like you could remember that they happened back then but some movies seem like you can't believe that they were all the way back then like they seem like they just like meet the parents came out in 2000 does that seem like it was a movie that came out much much later than mm-hmm. it does it because it just keeps coming out again and again <laughs> <laughs> they just keep doing it <laughs> just maybe that's right that's probably why <laughs> it never goes away <laughs> Um, remember, 2000 started with, I remember it started, and the, one of the reasons I, I told Michael I didn't think Russell Crowe was going to win was because, this is before Traffic came out, was because um, Michael Douglas was, you know, kind of on his way to winning, or he was he was sort of in the lead for Wonder Boys. It, he had a lot of early buzz for that. And Wonder Boys was such a great movie, but um, at the end of the day, it just never, it just didn't have the stuff to go all the way. 
for... A little too small scale, maybe. Yeah. I don't think it did very well at the box office, either. You know, uh, it kind of it came and went very quick. Cause, because I saw that movie, and I actually, I liked that movie. Um, but it just kind of came and went so quickly. And I know, I remember Michael Douglas was getting all this buzz, you know, for another Oscar and stuff like that. But the movie died very fast. But also, he didn't get a nomination at all because he didn't get in for Traffic or he didn't get in for Wonder Boys. Weird, huh? Another one of those movies that cost $55 million to make and it only made $19 million domestic, I'm looking at. So there you go. That's the reason right there. But I have to say about Wonder Boys, what I've also kind of harped upon for so many weeks, and maybe people are sick of hearing about it, but the way that they depicted gay characters in Wonder Boys is is really wonderful, Mm. perfect, exquisite, really realistic and not pandering and not pushing something down your throat and not making it unreal. That's a bad phrase to use. (laughs) Did I say that? (laughs) You know what I mean. I mean, it doesn't, like, force it on you. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't ram it down your throat. (laughs) Right, it doesn't ram you. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's a good movie, you know. I should have revisited it because I haven't watched it since then, since the year 2000. I I love that movie so much. Wonder Boys is probably my second or third favorite movie of the whole year. No, that's the movie that I have to um, revisit because I I only saw it just the one time. So that's, what, 13 years ago? So I have to see Mm -hmm. that again. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I like about it because it's Curtis Hanson proving that that, uh, L.A. Confidential was not a fluke. Right, right. Ah. But yet, because Such it a didn't... totally different movie. Mm-hmm. And it's looked upon as a failure because it didn't do, you know, it didn't get Oscar attention. And he's another one whose career just kind of fizzled. Took a nosedive, yeah. yeah. What did he make after that? Anything? He did 8 Mile, that Eminem movie. Mm-hmm. and then Which was a pretty uh, good hit, though. That did very well at the box office. Yeah, album. except it had Eminem in it, so what are you going to do? <laughs> he did In Her Shoes, which was another small-scale character drama and then he did lucky you which is a, actually not a bad um gambling movie that had what's his face in it that wasn't bad it had um eric banna it was great but oh it didn't, yeah uh-huh. it didn't make any waves at all but he's still working though right he's still making movies right curtis hansen not a ton. Not for a guy who was so awesome with LA Confidential 20 years ago. It's just you know, that's, that's why I say this industry is a nasty industry because it's like you can do so well. I remember the, the, the one act, the one director who took the biggest fall in Hollywood was Michael Shimino. He did The Deer Hunter and he had all this praise and all this promise. And then he did Heaven's Gate. And after that, you haven't heard from him again. Well, you know, yeah, we talked about that when we talked about the year that Heaven's Gate came out. He's 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 he was caught holding the bag for the destruction of an entire studio, even though it wasn't his fault. Right. Mm. So David Fincher told me that. David Fincher told me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he told me that. Um, Dropping those names, Sasha. No, he said that it was. It's so people don't understand how hard, what a huge fight it is to get a movie made, and and who you have to fight constantly on every single point to just get a movie made and you know one thing about winning oscars is it gives you clout and it gives you power even if you're in the oscar race at all so i wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason curtis hansen and um cameron crowe although he did get several more at bats after this you know he did get opportunities um i think something inside you just kind of dies as you as the door is closed 
as the Oscar <clears throat> race and when you're rejected like that, something closes probably, like both your faith in yourself and their trust in you that you can bring a movie to make a lot of money and get nominated for Oscars. You, you kind of lose that cred and so you don't get the best offers, you know, and, and it's, it's doubly hard then to fight to make a movie you want to make. Someone like Scorsese, he had that door shut so many times, but he was never, despite the fact that he wanted to win Oscars and that he tried all these different things maybe to get Oscar attention, you know, his passion for making movies remains intact regardless of what the Academy thinks of him, you know. His movies make money. As long as your movies make money, you can keep making movies, you know. That's what I love about, in terms of the current conversation, what I love about Lee Daniels. When he came out with The Paperboy last year, it was it was destroyed by critics. And you've got morons like Jeff Wells saying it's a career ender and he's never going to work again and he's never going to be taken seriously again. Because it was this odd sort of out there movie, which honestly I thought actually fit his sensibility. Mudd tend to think of it. It was a, it's, it's, it's a significant success audiences loved it and he he toned down his sort of his some of his weirder predilections for it but he still remained true to himself but i he he's somebody who you easily could have written off based on one laughed at movie that was actually unfairly laughed at but i'm glad he can you just repeat that part about saying lee daniels the butler because it stopped recording and i it i got your beginning and your end but i didn't get you saying the lee daniels part but so then, after being laughed at critically he and and having his career declared dead, he comes out with the Butler, which whatever you think about it as a film it 's a success it 's a huge success that audiences really love and he you know he managed to turn down some of his his odder predilections in terms of in his more extreme things to make a, a more mainstream thing. But it, it's ridiculous to to try and dismiss somebody just based on one movie. Mm. Well, you know, you know, um, every director or an actor or whatever is entitled to a few um, clinkers. I mean, you you can't have a run of succession all the time. I mean, I remember when um, Steven Spielberg, when he had all those successes with Jaws and Close Encounters, and then he came out and did 1941, which was a complete mess of a film. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people thought that he wasn't going to work again. And he came out with, um, I think, E.T., Mm-hmm. So, you know, it happens in Hollywood. I mean, I, I that's why I, I, I find it really odd when I hear that, oh, you know, he made this great film, but he hasn't worked in a long time now. It's like, well, you know, he made all these, like, clonkers. And it's like, it happens, you know. You can't have successes all the time, you know. Well, a lot of times a movie is perceived as a clunker because it's not the movie that you made just previously. And 1941 is a great example. It's a movie that, that people who like that big, sloppy comedy kind of movie – actually have come back to and they've realized that it's actually pretty good at the time it was rejected because it, it didn't make any sense coming from the guy who did close encounters and jaws it just didn't it didn't compute to them but when you when you ignore what your expectations are and you go back and see the movie for what it is a lot of times they turn out to be a lot better than what they were given credit for well, you I know, love I, 1941. I, I, do, I really do like I could probably sing you the whole score of 1941, and I love it. <laughs> it's so kinetic. It's so kinetic, and it, that's what Spielberg does so well. He can make those sort of 
uh, Rube Goldberg contraptions of movies that just where one thing collides into another and a chain reaction starts and just never stops for 20 minutes. You know, I love that. Well, I like the fact that films get re-evaluated over the years and um, they come up with, like, when they first came out, they're like a two-star film, but years later they get re-evaluated and they're up to three stars or sometimes, like, well, four stars is kind of rare, but they... There's something that they missed when it originally, when a film was originally released that they didn't get or see. And then years later, they, they see certain films again and go, wow, this is actually a really good movie. You've been listening to episode 54 of Oscar Podcast from the year 2000 with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com with special guest Michael Gray.